0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today we take stock of the COVID-19 pandemic and higher education. After nearly four years, how have universities changed? And what might their future look like? With me to discuss the post-pandemic university is Mark Kerrigan and Susan Robertson.
1: From my experience as someone who hadn't organized online events before the pandemic and has since organized a lot of them, is that they do have to be choreographed in a much more restricted way because you don't have the cues, you don't have the kind of tacit knowledge of embodied interaction. You have to have a clear structure to it and if you do that, they can work really effectively, but it's a very different kind of event. And the huge advantage is inclusivity, but conversely, uh, there's something that is lost from face-to-face events.
2: There'd been a deep level of resistance in Cambridge to doing things like examinations using laptops. But now, here, students are going to have to do exams. They're going to have to do exams clearly on laptops. There'd been, no, there'd been a little bit of trialling of the use of digital examinations and some things like that, but not, not en masse, and this is, of course, going to be a problem once you hit the sciences and you're thinking of experiments and things like that.
0: Mark Kerrigan is a lecturer in education at the University of Manchester, and Susan Robertson is a professor of sociology of education at Wolfenson College at the University of Cambridge. Together with Hannah Muscovitz and Michele Martini, they've recently co-edited the volume entitled Building the Post-Pandemic University, Imagining, Contesting and Materialising Higher Education Futures. Mark Kerrigan and Susan Robertson, welcome to FreshEd.
1: Hi Will, it's great to be here.
0: Wonderful to be here, Will. Today we're going to talk all about COVID-19 and higher education. Big, big topics. I want to start by maybe thinking about your own biographies and what you were doing when COVID hit. You both were working at the University of Cambridge. So take me back to, you know, March of 2020. What happened to the university and your daily experiences when covid hit
2: mark and i were actually in the faculty of education i was the head of the faculty and i do remember almost to the day date uh, around about the 15th of march and my sense is initially there was a kind of frisson in the air if you like you know people were joking a bit bumping ankles and elbows and things like that and they then suddenly there's a sense when everything you know is going to be shut down pretty much Overnight, in other words, people were rushed into their office to get anything that they wanted out. That the building was going to be closed. Anyone that was to be on the streets, more or less, needed a piece of paper, which I actually did. I had a piece of paper as a critical worker. But you had—it's uh, eerie to think about it now. Quite cities, so Cambridge is incredibly busy, thronging with tourists. You know, dead buildings, two to three people at best in a building, and not really a sense of. How then to get this huge enterprise called higher education where, you know, its buildings and its people and its classrooms and its timetables and its examinations and so on, that all of that routine that makes for the structure of higher education suddenly was just... It melted, you know, a bit like the glacial kind of warming at the moment. It it was so startling. Yeah, sure, the birds loved it, but it was a very eerie place to be in. And certainly, as a senior manager in the university, because there were so many constant and daily decisions to be made. And just so essentially, there is in universities what are called these different groups. Oh, so I'm in a gold group, and that gold group is always, as part of the risk assessments in the university, made up of certain. Kinds kinds of people. Your perhaps journalist, your person that looks after IT infrastructure, a school manager in this particular case, admin mine as the head of the faculty. And you had to come together and meet together almost in a kind of a war office like manner to each day try and get some decisions on the table and we were always having to then be kind of tuned in on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis, to what was called the Crimson Group and that Crimson Group was the group in the university that's then having to make all kinds of decisions that actually in some cases, you know, slowed lots of things down. Appointments, for instance, you know, um, if someone went, either something happened or they took a, a job somewhere else or left, it wasn't straightforward about how we would actually do that recruitment and even indeed get the permissions to do that recruitment because universities were worried seriously about their budgets. So that was that was my experience. Uh, Mark, what about yours?
1: Uh, it was very different in a lot of ways. I mean, I was a postdoctoral researcher, so nothing operational really depended on me. And that was a relief, but also anxiety provoking in a way, because I didn't feel I was hooked into wider systems in a way that would have facilitate any agency. But the crisis as a whole completely blindsided me. In the run-up to it, it was the third major strike action in a short period of time. And I was so caught up in the routine of going to the picket line, feeling stressed about the disruption, that I wasn't really reading the news at the time, which is very unlike me. And I remember towards the end of the strike thinking, when this is over, the disruption is finished. This strike will be the most disruptive thing that happens in my life for the next year or two. And then, you know, it's out of the frying pan into the fire. But when the kind of shutdown began... uh, you know, like everything changed and yet not at the same time. I mean, m- my teaching moved to teams, but it was small group teaching that easily made that transition. My research moved to the home, but my research often took place in the home anyway. You know, my, my defining memory of it was domestic, really, you know, kind of squabbles with my then partner about where, you know, kind of noise in the house, access to Internet. The fact that a house that can be comfortable if you have busy routines cannot be an office for two people, that the infrastructure was not sufficient. Suddenly all the neighbors were home all the time, so the level of background noise became very different in the neighborhood. And so, you know, it's kind of that violent hybridization of the public and the private and getting used to everything being mediated through Zoom. That's what really fascinated me. And so, you know, possibly rationalizing it as a defense mechanism, I very quickly decided that I wanted to study the post-pandemic transition. So I set up a blogging project with some online conferences a few months later, and that became the genesis of the book that we're talking about from those initial conferences. And I I found that comforting to kind of treat it as an intellectual object. It gave me that sense of agency over it that I think I was lacking in personal and working life prior to that.
0: Mark, I want to ask about that initial moment when you started teaching on Teams, because it was so abrupt and so quick. And like you said, it blindsided you. Did you have any experience with Teams, Microsoft Teams, before the pandemic?
1: No, I didn't. And I, I think few people did. I mean, you know, Teams the, the state of its development at the point the pandemic hit was fortuitous for Microsoft, to say the least, that they had stumbled into developing the perfect solution to the problem organizations around the world were then facing. But I found that transition relatively seamless, like less because of the technology and more because of the nature of the teaching. So the Cambridge tutorial system is small groups of three or four students usually. And because I've been teaching them throughout the year, there was a kind of existing level of connection and trust. And with small groups, that transition was a lot easier. But, you know, a few years on, when I'm in a position of coordinating a lot of teaching for quite a large team, I can now see how much more complicated that transition was. And so, in a way, it was quite an easy experience for me. And I can see that it wasn't for most people in academia.
0: And so, Susan, at your level, you know, at these decision making levels at the university and these different teams that existed, what was the conversation like in terms of? You know, how are we going to manage teaching and the student experience? Like, what was being discussed and decided at that sort of management level?
2: Well, there were lots of uh, huge decisions. Um, one, at least in our faculty, we're training teachers, and teachers actually have to be in classrooms with young people who, they're, as part of their graduation, they have to actually do that. So, the question of how did you do, do that? There was some teaching going on in um, schools to do with workers who were uh, critical workers or students, for example, whose mental health would be advantaged if they were in some classroom settings and so on. But we were deeply aware that our students uh, could be super spreaders. So they could, and and, and it's not even just a question of um, if you could get hold of a test and test yourself, you know, by the time the result came back, that might be 48 hours, in which case, you know, between now and, you know, the next few hours, I could have actually been in a situation where I did pick up COVID. And then that, and and so even the testing, um, and then looking at how did you test on mass was problematic. But our students also, certainly the undergraduate students live in colleges. And the colleges, my sense is not all of them, but some of them just completely hit the panic button. And they gave the students more or less 24 hours to be out of the college. Now, this is scattering the students to the wind, you know. How do they actually get on um, a plane or a train, if they could, and find their way back home? And students come from all over the world, so that's the first issue. But the second issue is undergraduate. There's been a deep level of resistance in Cambridge to doing things like examinations using laptops. But now here, students are going to have to do exams. They're going to have to do exams clearly on laptops. There'd been no, there'd been a little bit of trialing of the use of digital examinations and things like that, but not, not en masse. And this is of course going to be a problem once you hit the sciences and you're thinking of experiments and things like that. You you can also see the level of anxiety. Um, Some of listeners will be a bit surprised, but uh, the examination great uh, marks that count for our undergraduate students is the final set of exams uh, and weighted almost 100% and now what you can see is young people not in equal settings, sometimes with better technology Or and better bandwidth, but sometimes not, sometimes in families where they're not in competition for the uh, space or the technology, but sometimes there is a lot of things going on in that household. So the question then was, how did they do examinations that absolutely count when it's your final third year exam results? They are the ones, you know, 100% waiting. That mean that you go on to further work or where, what kind of employment you get. um, and so. Now, these are huge decisions. How do you run a science lab? And actually, science labs, you'd have to get critical workers with pieces of paper coming in and looking at how they might, you know, at distance from each other. What we also did in our faculty is looked at a a space that we could create where people could come in and record uh, lectures but you had to have a door in and a door out we had to have Mm. mechanisms where everything was cleaned if you used a space you had to clean the space as you left so cleaning resources if you could get them were everywhere masks and gloves and and so on kind of everywhere it was a a weird spooky Mm. we're very social beings and so you know Looking at who's coming down this, the stairs and then, uh, you know, or walking up behind someone at two meters, you know, life in the two meter society uh, was completely odd.
0: Like to show your love towards someone is to stay away from that person. Just a very different way of thinking of what, what social means. I guess, you know, now that we're three and a half years on from the pandemic or so or the onset let's say particularly in the UK in the march of 2020 sort of moment have institutions of higher education have universities themselves changed because of the pandemic and do you think some of these changes might be long lasting right or, or i guess the the issue is around how much was covid sort of a a blip that just sort of at, you know at some point we're going to revert back to march of 2029 2019 Or how much did it fundamentally change universities and how much the decisions that Susan was sort of talking about at those levels, but also the experiences that Mark, you were explaining, How much of these are now going to be sort of commonplace going forward?
1: Yeah, that's a brilliant question, Will. And I was thinking about that with the conversation I was having yesterday, because uh, part of the answer is about the broader societal context. When I started diving into the history of pandemics uh, early on in COVID, I was fascinated to realize the kind of general tendency towards cultural amnesia. You know, pandemics have as big an impact on civilization as wars, but we memorialize wars and we consistently try and downplay pandemics and eliminate them from cultural memory after they've passed and at least in the uk context it feels to me that has happened quite forcefully since then and it's hard not to see the same thing happening in universities at least in the sector that i work within but i think the cultural outgrowths of it persist even as the kind of macro history of it fades into the background With things like the enforced digitalization and what that means for digital literacy of staff, the acceleration of governance and how that changes the kind of imaginary of university managers, we can enforce this change rapidly, dramatically, and thus we might be able to do it again. So I think those legacies are there, but against this backdrop of cultural amnesia. And that's a very odd combination where we're changed, but we're not discursively aware or acknowledging the fact we've changed. And that's possibly quite dangerous in some ways, I think.
0: Is it about trauma in any way? You know, it feels like people went, we went through this collective trauma and like not talking about it is a survival strategy, it seems. But yet, as you're saying, Mark, it's all, you know, things have radically changed. And so it is this really, really strange moment to be in. I couldn't agree more. I
1: mean, I think there's an individual trauma, but a collective trauma as well that possibly operate in slightly different registers. And, you know, kind of a lot of the psychotherapeutic literature on trauma will talk about an, an inability to change, an inability to innovate as a response to trauma. You get locked into particular ways of relating to the world. And I don't think that quite fits with institutions. But... But I think the capacity to really learn institutionally from these experiences is locked down. So the changes are there, but without acknowledging and affirming and reflecting on the possible ameliorative transformations, you know, the, the kind of possibility that we could transform in more effective, more equitable ways. I think that was a real a tendency that we're at risk of losing because of this kind of institutional trauma that's lurking in the background.
2: So one example, I think, that is a positive outcome in the ways you were describing, Mark, there would have been a very strong view that while academics could make decisions around, you know, days that they worked at home and days they came into the office, that was never something that administrative staff were given the opportunity to do. And mm-hmm. it, in, in many cases, perhaps their conditions were potentially constrained. But you, you can see, and certainly for a university like Cambridge, where a lot of people don't live in the centre because it's quite expensive, so they live in the surrounding village. And neighbouring, you know, some distance. Sometimes, you know, at one or two-hour train ride. So, administrative staff could function extremely well, you know, as long as you digitised. Mm-hmm you know, fee claims and those kinds of things, um, which actually hadn't uh, kind of accelerated that. So there were lots of things, my sense is, that I think those outcomes are actually good for the environment. Um, Mm -hmm. Why do we have to hop in a car or on a train and go some considerable distance in order to put your face in at work? It's interesting, in yesterday's uh, newspaper, Guardian, you can see even uh for example uh, Zoom is insisting its employees come in at least so this is the mm-hmm. apart from Microsoft Teams Zoom was everything you know the, the word Zoom actually becomes verb through this period of time but As a a major provider of digital services, they're now insisting that their employees actually come in at least a couple of times. There's quite an interesting kind of struggle actually going on. Mm. Government departments mandating uh, that their workers uh, come in. And so that sense that you could trust people to work at home, and they probably did an enormous amount more than they were even paid for. Well, it, there's an effort to try and set that back in again, and I believe that that's detrimental. I think mm. that um, we should trust uh, workers to take pride in the work that they do and who deliver on that work, often under compromised uh, conditions, because then not always as quiet. They don't have the the kinds of desks and seating and bandwidth that you might have in the university and so on. So those kinds of changes, I think there's a a bit of a mighty war going on at the current time across different organisations that doesn't exempt the
0: university. In universities, I mean, because like I understand the point of that sort of hybrid working and how that can be really beneficial to all types of workers, not only certain classes of workers, especially in universities. But at the same time, there's another, you know, like there's also this element of the value of face to face. Three and a half years on, what what have we learned, what have universities learned about when face-to-face needs to happen and can't be replicated online? Or have they learned that? Is that even a conversation? I don't think
1: we have learned that. And I was fairly optimistic that we would, that we might move towards a position of symmetry, where rather than getting bogged down in a tedious cultural politics of, oh, digital is destroying the authenticity of social interaction, or, you know, social interaction in person is a retreat from the kind of modern affordances of the digital. I hoped we'd get to a point where we recognise that different modes of interaction have different affordances and different constraints. So we could begin to design for the best way of organizing any particular group activity. But I I don't think we have reached that point. I think we've had a kind of chaotic hybridization, which sometimes can feel like the worst of both worlds. I mean, you know, there are huge uh, inclusivity gains that can be achieved through hybrid working, uh, through not having expectations of coming into the office. And like Susan was saying, I mean, this is something that now applies across the university workforce, rather than the kind of traditional scholastic sense of hybrid working that, you know, many academics have always enjoyed. But I do think we need to have modes of organizing this and there's no real kind of normative framework for it. So the kind of gradual reduction of face-to-face contact and serendipitous contacts, I think is what's really missing. And so in a situation where you're trying to develop a new community where one wasn't there previously, the fact time on campus has to be scheduled in advance because people will come in on particular days and they will often schedule those days in quite a full way that means that you have to coordinate this interaction in a way that wasn't true previously. I found the experience of starting a new job in a new institution during this very interesting because initially it felt like nothing had changed because I was still at home and I was still in my living room on Zoom. I was just Zooming with different people at a different institution. But then when I did move to the area and started going into the office, it was much harder to meet people in person than was previously the case. So you can be in a friendly environment, but if meeting for a coffee becomes something that has to be arranged two weeks in advance, the social dynamics of the institution change. I really miss about Cambridge pre-pandemic corridor conversations. You know, just stopping at lunchtime uh, to go for lunch together or going for lunch on your own and meeting someone there. My experience is this just doesn't happen in the same way post-pandemic. In part, this might be that I've moved from a, a campus university to a kind of central city university. But I don't think it's just that. I think something subtle but huge has happened to how social networks form and reform after the pandemic.
0: Do you think that the sort of what it means to be an academic has therefore changed because of these you know, the different sort of social environment that we're in, the different social norms that have that now exist. Are we, are academics, at, like the role of an academic has now changed?
2: The reflection I was going to share on this, which uh, means it's not about the role changing as much as academic practice, your knowledge production practices. Mm-hmm. So it's not uncommon at all for people to expect that if an event is happening, Um, in in person that there is a zoom Mm -hmm. facility available but what that does is it distorts the over there and in here relationship so you're you're not always clear that the camera is picking up who's in the room you're not always clear if someone who's on zoom is actually there and listening behind the closed off camera that kind of thing and what that creates is this rather awkward dance that also gets in the way of the use of the time and the exchange of the ideas and so on. And while there's that at Wonderful that feels like it, it's engaged in being uh, inclusive, it takes up a lot of time to get it right. Um, it's rather distorting. Often the camera isn't on the person speaking or on the people in the room or on Zoom you can't quite see who's in the room because Mm. it doesn't have that level of depth and things like that. So my sense is that our knowledge producing practices and our knowledge sharing practices are rather awkward now and I feel that what we've got to do is think through ways in which we can have both inclusion but also um a much freer, flowing set of exchanges where we're able to understand, you know, body languages and, and things like that. Yeah, we're a long way from getting that right.
1: I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah, I think that's spot on Susan. And I remember a conversation we had years ago now early on in the pandemic where we hit upon the metaphor of choreography for online events. And that stayed with me because my experience as someone who hadn't organized online events before the pandemic and has since organized a lot of them, is that they do have to be choreographed in a much more restricted way because you don't have the cues, you don't have the kind of tacit knowledge for embodied interaction. You have to have a clear structure to it. And if you do that, they can work really effectively, but it's a very different kind of event. And the huge advantage is inclusivity, but conversely, uh, there's something that is lost from face-to-face events. And increasingly I'm reticent to organize hybrid events. I I rather organize online events when that's correct for the purpose and face-to-face events when we need something more discursive, immediate and functioning, say, as a a workshop. Uh, Because I think hybrid can be done effectively, but it's hugely resource intensive. Uh, You need someone to tech, you need the proper equipment and you need a plan for it. And often hybrid events in academia are just putting Zoom on over the computing infrastructure in an existing teaching room. Uh, and so I, I think if we do hybrid events, we need to do them properly and that needs the resources for them. And if we don't have those resources, we should choose between on-site or, you know, done remotely.
0: One of the things in in my job that I think has changed dramatically is the amount of time I spend on Moodle or Canvas. And it's just this huge amount of work to try and think not only about the content and the reading list and how I want to structure the sort of in-person teaching, but then I have this whole, you know, online learning space that has to be designed and curated and pulled together. And it just, it takes so much time to do it, much more than, you know, sort of the preparation for teaching ever took before. So that, for me, that's something that is new and is continuing on. So even though I teach in person now 100%, I still have these online learning spaces that, that continue. And I guess this raises a question that I'd, I'd like to ask about is, you know, so we've discussed ways in which the way in which academics operate has changed. What about students? Like, have the, the experiences of students changed? Has the meaning of what, it, you know, what a student is, has that changed? What has happened three years on or three and a half years on in relation to the student?
2: I think it's going to be different in different places, but certainly the thing that we saw at the time when students um, were quite harshly almost quarantined, you know, placards in windows yeah, as if they were in prison, those kinds of Issues and, and, and we did see uh, significant uh, mental health issues, and in fact, we can see that is also spiked. That is a major concern. Um, young people who were caught up in a, a series of maelstroms wasn't if they're in school, you know, how did they do exams in order to get onto university and feel that the whole process was fair? So, there's that part. If you were or, already at u- university and you were kind of well, literally kind of asked to go away, or if you were to stay, you were in small pods and couldn't um, you had to maybe in small groups look after each other as someone came down with COVID you were stuck in your room they're not big rooms they were never designed to be learning spaces and again that would have generated you know quite significant poor health but what we can see at the moment, um, these cases are just kicking off right this week, being reported in um, the major newspapers, uh, class actions now. So we've got the uh, legal profession actually reaching out and suggesting, so these are international firms, legal firms, that uh, they would, for 30% cut of the final amount that might be settled, that they would actually make a case that um, the student didn't get what they bought. And you can only have that kind of language when you've got a a market-oriented way of organising higher education. Here in England, it's uh, oversighted by the Competition and Markets Authority and the Office of Students. And what that means essentially is, you know, what product that you sell, like baked beans on a shelf, has got to do what it says on the tin. And the students are actually saying, we bought a student experience and we bought in-person learning and that isn't what we got. Now, universities, and the issue at the moment for the lawyers is how do you assess the value financially, in monetary terms, of the loss of a certain kind of education when it only takes a particular form, virtual learning. Mm -hmm. And these cases are also going on in the United States. So these are two big countries that have do operate a a much more consumer-driven higher education system. And my sense about that is that that is... Potentially devastating for how we think about knowledge production in the university, its circulation, um, you know, uh, and, and so on. Because if at the end of the day um, a student understands, has now enrolled themselves, committed themselves, you know, perhaps because there's a financial return from the the class action that this this is consumer, this is what they bought, and it's not what they got. That that actually really, I think, undermines. Everything that we feel is important about uh, the university. Knowledge mm-hmm. production, its circulation, uh, its engagement, its curation, all of these kind of activities are fundamentally important for the health of a society. And to almost stitch it into, um, let's say, precedents around cases and things like that, um, is going to harden the difficulties of pulling it back from that, I'd say, very unhealthy brink. So I see mm-hmm. some. Big dangers yeah.
1: and issues are here. Yeah, and I'm really worried about what that might mean for how universities relate to digital education. You know, the kind of emergency delivery during the pandemic was a huge achievement, brought about at great cost. But it was an incredibly limited model of what digital pedagogy can be. You know, much of it was focused on the delivery of content and that was a situational necessity. But my worry is these court cases, as they play out, could contribute to a stronger desire to flip back to the old normal and the capacity of online education to facilitate more participatory, more creative, more equitable forms of engagement could be lost. And that's really worrying. And, you know, those court cases, I was shocked to see outside our graduation ceremonies. There was actually a van that had been driven outside with a huge advert on the side, inviting people to take part in the action.
0: It's almost like what Zoom did in the beginning, right, where, where all these ed tech companies coming to the rescue right when all the, these institutions shifted online. Now we're at the stage in the, of the pandemic when it's the lawyers who are sort of taking advantage of this opportunity. I mean, it's it's really quite sort of shocking. And I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and... I guess, you know, as a final question, we're sort of, of course, still in the pandemic, but we're also sort of far enough away where some of these big tensions and issues that are sort of reshaping the university are sort of taking hold and, and, you know, becoming manifest. And so, you know, what are some of the tensions that you would point to that we need to keep an eye on going forward? in terms of the post-pandemic university? Like, what, what are the big ones in your mind?
2: Let me just, you know, share with our viewers the venture capital moved into the education world in a serious way. And if you look at the kinds of figures, um, there's an organization which in itself is a venture capital organization, Holland IQ, that... Some of the listeners might either know or want to look out for. Um, what that's doing is it's tracking uh, ed tech investments into sectors like higher education. And it's, I mean, it's an ast- amount of EdTech money that actually went into the higher education world. I mean, it's trading off a, a little bit, but it's in the billions and billions and major transactions taking place that are also being monitored. But what I've logged on essentially is now all kinds of different platforms to do with workforce training, to do with helping, let's say, schools and teachers potentially to connect if they need to workforce learning platforms unwell, another one to do with mental health and so on. So I would say that the infrastructure of the university has been rapidly potentially kind of platformed. And this does require, in very significant ways, our uh, attention and our research energies to try and understand what these, because platforms structure possibilities and knock out others. So what are the new, um, structural and strategic selectivities get, that get put into place when our activities, our knowledge exchange activities or our knowledge creation activities or our knowledge sharing activities or c- creation, curation, etc, uh, etc, cetera, et cetera, is now underpinned by a platform. Um, And Mark, you know, share with us your thoughts on ChatGPT, which is a platform, but it, what a feast it's been given. Look at all those data traces uh, that it's got. Look at all those conversations that were taking place.
1: There are elements of the pandemic digital response that really worry me looking back, particularly the kind of easy embrace of surveillance pedagogy. So, you know, kind of online proctoring is the most notorious example of this. But there was a broader tendency to embrace the idea that you could find digital solutions to problems of assessment integrity. There was also, you know, kind of naivety sometimes in digital procurement within universities where the stories of ed tech providers were accepted wholesale and often acted upon in a way that was disconnected from academic governance. And as we're kind of entering a situation where generative AI saturates the university landscape, those tendencies really worry me if we see a resurgence of them because we now have enormous socio-technical challenge about how we pivot assessment towards approaches that are adequate to generative AI. And I don't think this is the, the case of the assessment system working fine previously, then a technological disruption has impeded it. I think cracks in the assessment system have been showing for years. I mean, you know, contract cheating, essay mills, have been seen as a specific issue of student misconduct, whereas it seems clear to me this was a systematic weakness in the assessment system facilitated by digitalization. You didn't have mass essay mills until you had mass access to the Internet. The business model depends on digital technology. And now we're seeing those cracks become ever wider. And there's a real possibility that trust that A degree means what it is said to mean, that a student can be assumed to that a student assessment can be assumed to reflect something of that student's learning. There's a risk this is all gonna break down and you know we need to redesign assessment on this basis. But I worry firstly, as I've said, that these kind of digital pathologies will creep in as this starts to happen, but also the cultural politics of the pandemic that we talked about earlier, the kind of institutional trauma, this will impede responses. We have shown that we can move fast when we need to, and I think we need to move fast now, but we need to move fast in a reflective, joined up, purposeful way. And I'm worried that isn't going to happen. I find generative AI absolutely fascinating and engrossing at the level of individual practice, but I'm worried this is gonna be a disaster institutionally. And it's a disaster that we could address uh, competently, but that these legacies of digital disruption and digital change over the last five years are gonna get in the way, unfortunately.
0: Well, Mark Kerrigan and Susan Robertson, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Congratulations on your new co-edited book. It sounds like, Mark, you just laid out the next volume of such a collection to think about the post-pandemic from that generative AI perspective. So thanks so much for joining once again, and congratulations.
1: Thanks, Will, that was a great conversation. You're very welcome, thanks, Will.
0: Mark Kerrigan is a lecturer at the University of Manchester. And Susan Robertson is a professor at the University of Cambridge. Their new co-edited volume is entitled Building the Post-Pandemic University. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Freshhead's team includes Fatih Octas. Obafemi Ungunwe, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che mensa and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shock Dev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.